And it was very healing for my mom. I had so many people tell me, it's like she's always had this hole and now she's complete and that they've never seen her so full of joy her whole life. Not that she wasn't happy and stuff, but there was something missing as compared to before reunion and after reunion. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Janet. I spoke to her from Fort Wayne, Indiana, but her life began back east. Janet's adoption was a different scenario than I had heard before. Usually a child transitions from foster care to a new family and begins a new life. But her experience was different in an interesting way. She's an interracial woman, so growing up in a small town in the Midwest, she stood out in her community. Janet's search for her parents clarified the story of how she came to be. A girl and boy from opposite sides of the tracks fall in love, and their parents reject the relationship and intervene when the pregnancy is revealed. Janet shares how her quest to learn who her parents were also helped her get in touch with a piece of her interracial makeup that she had never been face-to-face with before. Here's Janet's journey. Janet had a unique experience in foster care for two years and then in her subsequent adopted family. Listen to this. I was fortunate in that I was in the same foster home for those two and a half years. And actually who adopted me, and this is where I guess it can be a little confusing or tricky. My foster parents, their nephew adopted me. Really? Their nephew adopted me. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yes. So I, I always consider myself blessed in the sense of sometimes kids or, or folks who've been adopted and started out in foster care, they have missing time in their childhood. And mine pretty much starts from three days old. I mean, I, I still have still had the missing time that all adoptees have of beforehand, you right, know. Right, right. Um, but I, you know, I have the baby pictures I have, you know, when I said my first words, how I ate, you know, those types of things, even though I wasn't adopted until age two and a half. That's really unbelievable because you're right. That's a significant portion of an infant's life that just gets left behind. And sometimes I think adoptees can forget that they were in foster care. And and I had that experience. I was like, wait a minute, there were people I used to live with. Before my parents. Right. Wow. Right. That's so interesting. So so I always knew that and had a close relationship with my foster parents, aka my great aunt and uncle. Actually, I was the last child my foster parents had, and they were going to adopt me. But the whole family was picking up and moving south. I was a biracial adoptee. And in the late sixties, they had concerns about moving south and the impacts on me in terms of being a black child in a white home and those types of challenges. Yeah, There was some of that. And I'd been in the family now for two and a half years. So going kind of on at the same time, my adoptive parents, they were trying to have a third child. They had two sons 
um, naturally already. And, and my adopted mom had had several miscarriages. So my mom, you know, at the time told me that when I was being discussed in the family, my dad's like, so you want her? Okay, well, adopt her, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I stayed in the family, so to speak. That's really unbelievable and amazing. How cool. You didn't yeah, go far no, at all. I didn't. And then who became my uh, adopted grandmother, who I was very close with growing up, it was her sister who was my foster mom, and she helped take care of me. And so she would regale me with stories, and I knew that I was loved from right from the beginning, especially by my grandmother and my foster mom. We were, we were close, you know. Janet spent her first two years living around Cleveland, Ohio, where she was born. Then they moved to a very small country community in northwest Ohio. It was the kind of small town where Janet's high school graduating class was only 67 people. And for a young lady with an interracial background, the community's racial makeup was a stark reality. And it was a very, as you might imagine, non-diverse community. I'll bet. You could probably count the other people of color around you, huh? um, Yeah, and my school, one other, several years younger. (laughs) Wow. And she was adopted, the the other person of color. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like it was a family or anything like that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so it was just you mm-hmm. children. It's not like it was the parents and the child. Right. You two children right. were the only people of color in your entire community. So, you know, that really shaped my childhood. And, you know, looking back on things where I look at impacts, you know, is it adoption? I was probably equally impacted by race growing up and my need to fit in. And my need to be accepted and all of those things that drive you, you hear a lot of that by adoptees. And then you add maybe being a different race than than your family and your community and your friends. And so it kind of magnifies that, I feel, at least in my life. I can imagine. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, the general feeling of possibly being an outsider as a result of adoption and then literally looking around you at the entire community of people that surround you and you don't resemble them very clearly by race either. It must have been mm-hmm. somewhat isolating at times. Definitely. Definitely. And and you become very driven then to do what you can to fit in in the ways you can to be mm. accepted and to not draw this is, you know, it's funny. It's very um to not draw attention that you're a different race, but you know, hey, I'm the only one with a fro and nappy hair. And, (laughs) you know, it's, it's the seventies by this time. So, you know, you look quite different. Janet always knew that her mother was white and her father was black, but in her closed adoption, that was almost all of the information she had. Her foster mother thought perhaps her mother had been musically inclined, but that was it. Janet said she was always curious about her birth parents. She admits she spent the most time imagining her mother. She talks about those feelings and her secret introspection to see how she was like other people of color. I spent a lot of time imagining what she might look like. I spent a lot of time also looking at any time. It's funny, when I went off to college, I went to a bigger town and that was far more diverse. And, you know, I worked with um, more a diverse population. I spent a lot of time watching 
people of color to see what I had in common, what I didn't have in common, you know, what kind of traits. I was very consumed with that, but that was all very personal and very private. I didn't talk about those things. Right. It was all, you know, very much watching, thinking through it, but I didn't share a lot. But I was always very curious about my mom. Janet admitted she didn't even know she could search for her biological relatives at first. When she was 21, she was married, but she didn't start having children until she was 30. In the interim, she had a health issue with a recurring tumor that startled her into wanting to explore her heredity for medical reasons. But when the tumor was reported to be benign and it was declared it was not a genetic condition, Janet's passion for the search waned. Then her desire to have children kicked in, but it was a challenge. When I was 30 and we started to think about having a child, I had fertility issues. As a result, I couldn't get pregnant. And that was. On one hand, I was very open to adoption because I'd had a positive experience. But so then when I'm faced with not being able to produce anybody that looks like me, mm-hmm. that was something I had to work through, even though I was very open to adopting a child. And so when we adopted, one of the things, and, and it's really, I consider it a little bit un. It's very unnatural, actually. You know, you kind of go through and what your desires of a child would be. And one of our desires, one of my desires is to adopt a biracial child so I could, my husband's white, so we could give a child like me a home that reflects a little bit more who they are. And, That's interesting. And, and I think also there is a need in me to have someone like me <laughs> as well. Yeah. And so... We were blessed and, and gosh, that fell into place within nine months of starting the adoption process and having a, a baby. And that was through, you know, uh, agency adoption and everything. We were really blessed and that happened really quick. So I'm an adoptive mom, too. So I wear a couple different hats mm-hmm. in the adoption triad. Janet hadn't done a lot of reading nor research on adoption or reunification in her life when something very random happened in September 2001. Her son was three years old, and they were out on errands when a book that tied her back to her birthplace caught her eye. We were in a Christian bookstore just looking around, and this book caught my eye as we were walking down the aisle, and I pulled it out. And the the reason I comment as a Christian bookstore is that this book that was there wasn't faith-related at all. It was just an autobiography of this lady who started uh, an adoption support group in Cleveland, and it was her autobiography. And so I immediately grabbed it. And so I had read a few things, of course, but so I grabbed and I bought this book. And, And the book was fascinating. She'd had a great reunion, but her support group was based in Cleveland, which is where I was born. And an arm of the group had search angels that would help. And so this was like in late August, early September of 2001. And so I'm reading this book and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to search. I'm going to contact them and I'm going to do this. She contacted the group and they sent her a packet of information in the mail. It detailed what Janet needed to do and what she needed to provide the search angels to get the ball rolling. She followed the checklist and got her non-identifying information from the adoption agency. Reading the non-identifying info opened her eyes to so many facts about her parents. I got that turned around, gosh, really pretty quickly, probably by 
early October, I received that. And that was fascinating, Damon. I mean, it was like the world opened up despite all those black lines marking out things. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> what kinds of stuff did you learn when you got that information? Well, I knew that my birth family was from the Pittsburgh area. I learned that my mother was a daughter of a minister. I knew that she was the second oldest out of five kids. Five, wow. And that she had three brothers and one sister. I knew that she was interested in music mm-hmm. and was and loved to sing. I felt I learned everything and I learned her age. I felt I learned so much. And it was just like, oh my gosh, you, here it is. You know, it just, it's like all of a sudden now my life can begin before birth. You you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Suddenly there were real people associated with your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, and it told me some about my birth father. And so it's like, wow, they were a couple, you know, she got pregnant when she was in high school. So it had some basic things. Yeah. You start to be and, able to paint a little bit of picture on the canvas as to how you came yeah. to be. Yeah, that's really because fascinating. You, it is. And, and you know, growing up, you tend to create the best case scenario, the worst case scenario in terms of your imagination of what, you know, your birth parents may have been like. And so this starts to put a little reality and context to things. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was just like bouncing off the walls with joy. And at that time, I thought, if this is all I get, it helps. You know, this is okay. Janet completed the checklist, sent her package of information back to the search angels, and waited to hear how they would be able to help her. In late October, she's reading the instructions again, and they said, You should register with the International Soundex Reunion Registry, the ISRR. And I'm like, all right, I'll do that. (laughs) She found a form that requested every piece of information she knew about her adoption. Those were pre-internet days, so there was no online form to complete. She printed the form, filled out the pages with her birth date, her birth parents' ages and races, and sent the information via mail to Colorado. That was a Saturday. On Friday at work, because I gave my work number and my home number, I get a call from Tony at the ISRR saying we have a match. Wow. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Way ahead before I could even be mentally prepared. I was blown away. I, I could not believe it. And he was the one to share my birth name with me. I was named Kimberly Ann. And my mother had been registered with them since I turned 18. Oh, man. She's been waiting for you. She had been waiting and I, I was just like, oh my goodness. And he said, I've already put in a call to her. He said, but she was not home. And he said, I have to be careful because her husband answered and you never know what they know or what they don't know. So he left her the message. It said, I would like to talk to you about Kimberly Ann. And so she knew immediately (laughs) and and so did did her husband. Oh yeah. He knew already. Mm-hmm. Okay. He did. That's good. And so it was funny because I didn't hear anything Friday night and I was beside myself. <laughs> so I called out to Colorado on, on Saturday because I can't let things go. I can't wait. And Tony answered and he laughed. He goes, oh, my gosh. She goes, I never come into the office on Saturdays. He goes, and here I am. I just had to run and pick up something and you catch me. Wow. He goes, he goes, she did call back. We'll be waiting to hear. 
and I'll call you Monday. And so he called me on Monday and told me that my mother would be calling me that night. Oh, man, that's so awesome. How quickly this thing is moving. Oh, it moved so quickly. And when I told her that, she chuckled and said, well, I've been waiting your whole life. So not that quick, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's like a glacial point, pace you, for her. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Exactly. Because at this point, I'm 34 years old and she registered when I was 18. Oh so she'd gosh. been waiting at least 15 years. Her mother registered for reunification with ISRR when Janet turned 18, 15 years prior. But imagine how she must have longed for a reunification with her daughter in the years way before that. When her mother saw the message with Janet's birth name on it, it sent her into a state of shock. She could have called the same night, but her mother had to take a moment to process everything. Janet arranged for her husband to take their son out on Monday night so she could focus on her first conversation with her birth mother. She locked herself in their laundry room. I can remember being so nervous, even silly things like practicing. How will I say hello? Oh, yeah. my goodness. You know, I'm going to talk to my mother. Mm -hmm. And and I just couldn't believe it. We had um, a really good conversation. It was information sharing. And, and in that phone call, I learned that my father was deceased. And that was something it's like I took it in. I wrote it down. I took his name. But I just kind of put it aside because it was all about my mom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just kind of set that aside. You know, I assured her that I was not, I, I didn't harbor any resentment. I had a good life and I would never wish that away. And that I hoped that, you know, that we could get to know each other and that she didn't have to worry about that from me. And, you know, she told me that basically she always loved me and, and at a high level, a little bit about the circumstances. It was 1966 and her mother, a white woman, was a minister's daughter in Pittsburgh. At the end of her senior year of high school, she got pregnant by one of the school's star athletes, a black man raised in the projects. She didn't tell her family anything at first. She went off to college and she never told anybody. She told him didn't tell her parents. She finally told my grandfather in November. So she goes almost more than halfway through the first semester of college. She said there was an ice storm. She fell and it scared the death out of her. And she knew she couldn't continue on mm -hmm. not making any decisions here, not telling. And so she came home and she told them and she pretty much was promptly she goes, we didn't, she goes, we didn't have a plan. We didn't have jobs. We didn't know how to do this. We, we weren't in a position. And she goes, it's not like I chose adoption, but I didn't choose anything. She goes, my dad just took control, called his parents, also made the decision because someone else in the church was pregnant and due at the same time. He couldn't have my mother in the hospital at the same time as another parishioner. And so my grandmother and her best friend arrangements were made and they took my mom to a home for unwed mothers in Cleveland, mm -hmm. which was about two hours away from Pittsburgh. And so she spent Christmas in the new year by herself in a home for unwed mothers. When Janet was born, her mother called home to share the news. 
She called Janet's father and called home to speak with her own dad. And then she begged to hold me and she was able to hold me for a period of time. And then my grandparents came and picked her up and brought her home. And she refused to go. I don't know if refused, but she didn't go back there. She went to a a good family friend of my grandmother's to recoup there and then began a little bit of resentment in her heart for maybe not more support and finding a way to keep me. That's what I was told. And it sounds like she was swept away by the process that her father had already decided upon. And she, it sounds like she didn't really feel like she had any choice. Right. Yeah. Right. And Mm. then after a period of a few months and she called, she would call periodically the, the adoption agency and see if I'd been placed for adoption. She requested pictures, which she showed me copies of. And then probably after four or five months, she and my father took off and they moved to Detroit for a period of time. So the the relationship continued, which I was kind of glad to hear about selfishly because the relationship was meaningful to each other for a period of time. And I don't know, I, I think kids like to know that. Yeah, and so, it, it, there's some comfort in knowing that the relationship that brought you into the world had some kind of love in it. There's there that's right. comforting. And a lot right. of adoptees don't get anything remotely resembling that. Right. So I could see how that would be somewhat heartwarming for you to hear. Yeah. Now, their relationship was a bit volatile and after some time in Detroit My father, you know, was maybe leading a lifestyle that was not one that my mother chose to continue with. She went home. She went home to Pittsburgh and he called her a few times afterwards that she kind of just decided, I'm not going to do that. And they parted ways and lost track of each other. And she just went on, you know, with her life and eventually got married and and had a child and, you know, just went on with her life. The women started a series of calls and letter writing. Indiana to Pittsburgh is more than a five-hour drive, so they didn't jump in the car immediately to meet one another. Their correspondence helped Janet get to know her mother's journey and her father's story as told by her mother. I have all these letters, and and she shared my father's story, or their story, and Mm -hmm. the good and the bad of it. And she probably hid some of the bad of it. But um, the downside of it. Yeah. But through this, my brother, her, she had a a son. He's 10 years younger than me. He didn't, he was about the only one in the family that didn't know about me. All of her siblings knew, of course. And at this point, my grandfather is no longer living, but Mm -hmm. my grandmother is. And so she had to, she had to tell my brother. And that took a little bit longer. That took her a good three or four months for her to get up the nerve. She was nervous about it. They were extremely close. She was unsure how he would take it. He was in the middle of planning a wedding. Wow. Um, there was a lot going on. And I was a little impatient because I didn't want to be the secret anymore. But when she finally did, you know, that went so well. And he wrote me right away. Janet started her connection with her mother in November 2001. But they didn't meet one another until July 2002. Her mother needed to get through her son's wedding and let the dust settle before she focused on their reunion. The ladies agreed to meet halfway between one another in Columbus, Ohio. They brought their spouses and photos of the memories from earlier in their lives. It was just she and I and our spouses. 
And, <laughs> and that was, and we brought all these, we hauled all these pictures in and photo <laughs> albums and it was just wonderful. And then we made plans to meet in the fall. And so I went to Pittsburgh in October of 2002 and literally met everybody really? with my son with, it was instant family, Damon. It was like, I had never been gone. Really? My, That's so cool. Yeah, it, it was, yeah, it was overwhelming, but wonderful. My uncle, her oldest brother, he immediately hugged me and said, I have been praying for you your whole life. Oh, man. And, and it was very healing for my mom. I had so many people tell me, it's like she's always had this hole and now she's complete and that they've never seen her so full of joy her whole life. Not that she wasn't happy and stuff, but there was something missing as compared to before reunion and after reunion. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, did you feel the same thing? I did. And, you know, but I don't know that I recognized the lost, what was lost until it was found. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And and it gave me a lot of perspective and looking at some of my, you know, who I was growing up and how I behaved and the things I was concerned about, you know, of trying to fit in and all those things, you know, it pieced together the whole picture, but it wasn't just race and, and adoption. It was, it was that need to know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, and, there's a funny thing, you know, that people always say in any situation, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. And so exactly. it applies to adoption too. You can, be perfectly happy in the family mm -hmm. that you were raised in, or at least yeah. think that you are. And it's yeah. not until something happens that clues you in that there's more to know, more to learn, right. more about you physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever the thing is. And then yeah. you go, oh, wow. And it, it's just, exactly. you know, it, it, again, you don't know that you don't know it. And then when you know it, you're like, I can't believe I didn't know this. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you, you think about nature and nurture a lot. And, you know, I just chalk up that I'm like, well, I'm sure nurture is the heavier influencer. You know, I, I try to make myself thought, think that growing up, even though I wasn't anything like my family. Mm. Um, <laughs> I can't believe when I met my mom and then met the rest of the family, they were like, Oh my gosh, you guys are so much alike. Is that and you know, right? seeing wow. someone, seeing when she smiled, it's like, oh my gosh, we have the same smile, we have the same chin, we're built very similar, you know, the height, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, so this is this is where this is it. Wow. And there were things I noticed too. Our hands were not the same, our you know, there were some other things and she looked at me, she says, Your hands are your father's. Oh my goodness, you know, mm -hmm. and I ordered breakfast once and she's like, oh my goodness, you order it just like your father ordered breakfast, you know, just really? little things. And huh. it was just to have that, it just, nothing meant, I, I didn't realize how much that would mean to me to finally have that connection. It was awesome. Janet said that one of her aunts even told her that she watched Janet parent her son and it reminded her of how her mother parented Janet's brother, the same tone and directness. Some things are just innate in who we are. I wondered about what Janet told her son, who was four at the time, about what they were experiencing together. 
She said adoption has always been part of their lives, and the openness and truth about what was unfolding in their family made it easy for him to accept the new relatives that they were all getting to know. Janet helped him relate her own adoption to his adoption. What did you tell the little guy about what was happening for you? Mm. You know, I, you know, we started very basic, like you're going to meet new family. This is your grandma. You know, we would talk about adoption. We never hid adoption. It was always part of our conversation. It wasn't a focus of our life. It was just part of our life. And, and so he couldn't understand it at an early age. But gosh, you would think when he landed in Pitt, when we walked up to my mom's house in Pittsburgh, he jumped in her arms <laughs> and it was like he was home, oh. you know, uh, until this day, even until this day, he's 19. He, he would probably move there, you know, because he, he just loves what I call our Pittsburgh family. But, you know, we just talked about families are made all certain types of ways. And I have two moms, mm-hmm. you know, and and you're you have two moms, mm-hmm. you know, That's and right. his adoption was a little bit different because his was semi open. Mm-hmm. So we would correspond through the adoption agency and I would send his um, his birth mom pictures and stuff, and she would send him gifts and presents at the holidays and stuff. So he always had an awareness of his birth mom being a part of our life. Okay. So the concept of someone who grew me in her tummy as compared to my mom, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of the distinction that I had someone who grew me in her tummy as compared to his grandma. Right. And the person who grew me in her tummy is his grandma too. So mm-hmm. he's so lucky to have more grandmas, you know, <laughs> and, and he's like, I got more people to love me. And he ate that up. Yeah, you man, know? that's a great thing. That's a mm-hmm. great thing. We all love to be loved. Janet said she and her mother were extremely close, chatting every Thursday at 730 p.m. and going on vacations together and sharing life events post reunion. Then her mother was diagnosed with cancer. And sadly, she passed away. Janet had already explored some of the facts of her father's life, but didn't pursue a paternal connection further because she could tell she was dredging up tough memories for her mother. Janet decided it was okay to explore her curiosity about connecting to his side of her story. And in 2011, she was diagnosed with cancer and she had battled non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in her early 30s. And feared that we would never find each other. And, you know, in 2011, she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. And she passed away in July of 2012, which is a very traumatic event for me. Yeah. Um, And for my brother. My brother and I were very close. And, and, And I would ask her questions through our relationship about my birth father. And she was pretty forthcoming. And she told me quite a bit. And letters and such, but I just, I just couldn't believe that I could have a good reunion there. And I knew my grandparents weren't supportive or believe that I was theirs. And so I just never went down that path because I had such a good thing. Why risk it with something that might not be? Mm-hmm. So I didn't even, I just put it on the back burner and she'd given me a couple pictures. She had Xerox copies and she passed away. And a year after she passed away, we started cleaning out her stuff. We were finally, my stepfather was able to let us in and really clean out her stuff. And I found her high school yearbook, which she never showed me. Um, 
And as I was going through it, there's my father all through it. And I'm like, what? He's all through this. And he had signed her yearbook. And I'm like, you know, I'd run my hand over her, his signature and what he wrote. And, and I'm, I, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I asked my, I asked her husband, my stepfather for the yearbook. He was hard pressed to give away things. And it took him a year to give it to me. So he gave it to me in 2014. And I will say, because I am a curious sort, even in the middle of of my birth mom's relationship, I ordered my birth father's death certificate. I figured out how he died. Mm -hmm. He died, unfortunately, in a violent way. I, I knew some things. And I also learned that he was buried just around the corner from where my mother lived. And so we investigated that a little bit. So I wasn't afraid to talk to her about him, but I didn't push the envelope. Yeah. Because I could tell when I bring him up, it created, I don't know if it was sadness or stress. It, it, it brought back the pain from years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I get this yearbook in 2014. And I'm looking at it and I Googled his name a million times. That's how I got his death certificate. That's how I'd done a few things, but I I still didn't know anything about him. With all of the information Janet had about her birth father, she couldn't figure out how to go further in trying to connect to their family. Her internet searches told her his parents, her grandparents, were deceased. Her mother had mentioned a paternal uncle that they had lived with in Detroit, but she didn't have his name. One day Janet's friend whom she calls a super user of Ancestry.com, took Janet's father's identifiable information to try to learn more. Janet's friend found a partially finished family tree online with her father's name on it. She contacted the owner of the family tree, who actually wanted to know more about Janet. Janet took the person's contact information and emailed them to share a little bit about her relation to her father. She asked for additional information from the family tree's owner. And she replied back and said, you know, there's really only one family member remaining. And before I contact them, can you give me a little bit more? So we did this dance for a couple days, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And finally, I'm like, what do I have to lose? So I outlined everything, you know, where they went to high school at, mm-hmm. you know, just laid it out. the years. I just laid it out because what do I have to lose? Yeah. And, I, and then I said again, can you tell me who you are to him? And she wrote back, she's like, oh, my goodness. She goes, I'm married to your baby brother. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. And and that was like on a Friday when I learned that, you know, I have this brother and he was born and raised in Pittsburgh and actually now lives probably near where you do, Damon, in the Maryland, D.C. area. Oh, yeah. Cool. And he's just four and a half, four years younger than me. Mm-hmm. I learned that on a Friday and by Saturday, he and I were emailing and we've been in contact ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like Labor Day weekend of 2014. And I happened to be in D.C. for a conference in late October that same year and met him face to face. Wow. How was that? And it was awesome. It was really great. Um, it was a different reunion than my mom and I. and it also brought forward of how much I wanted to know about my dad and how much I really missed that and missed that opportunity and how sad I was that he had died, that I hadn't really gone there before. Mm-hmm. And even though he died when my brother was pretty young, he has great memories of him. And 
really helped me round out my father a little bit because I filled in my own blanks of things I didn't want to ask my mom because of the obvious pain. Yeah. And I really have such a, a better, what I feel, rounded out, balanced perspective of my father now. And I just have really finally gotten myself to a sense of peace and, and by help of my brother, because one of the first things he said to me is, you know, I just feel like your mom and our dad, that even though they're no longer with us, just are really wanted this to happen and help make this happen as a, as a, as a healing for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me. And, and I've really come to realize that I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed because I don't have my dad and I'm never going to know him fully. He, he left the best part of himself in my brother. Oh, that's awesome. And we have, you know, spent these last three, three and a half years and strengthening that relationship. And, you know, we're, we're in a, a really good place with it. So I feel I have been really blessed with two really strong, different, but great reunions. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really incredible. And it's so funny how, you know, a child can put you in touch with the parent, even when the parent is not there. They can give you a feeling of what that person was, and you can get the essence of them from their child. It's really an amazing experience. That's really cool that you were able to connect with him here. That's so awesome. It is because, you know... My birth mom, she told me a lot about my father's personality and such. Mm -hmm. And so now when I'm interacting with my brother, I am like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly how she described him, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And and so I think I'm getting a really nice glimpse. And then it's also given me that insight into that other side of me and my racially diverse background, you know, Mm -hmm. because my birth mom is white and my whole family's white. And and this is opening up the other side of myself and helping give me, you know, some insight into myself, into that side of my genetics and, and history and so forth. And, and that's been a blessing and something I've yearned for my whole life. Mm-hmm. And then it's also given my son, who didn't up until this point really have a strong black male in his life, mm-hmm. it's given him that. Mm-hmm. And that's been such a good thing. I wondered about the racial component of Janet's life at this point. She grew up in a white family, was raised in predominantly white communities, but a part of her genetics is black. I asked her what it was like to come face-to-face with her brother and see a black face just like her own. It was fascinating, and it's fascinating in the sense of, like, his wife just kept saying, oh, my gosh, your eyes, she and he, she said, "You, she looks more like your daddy than you do," which wow. she didn't like all that much. <laughs> I won't say that. Like what? Right, right. He's not used to sharing that. Yeah, um, sure. It was because it, it's not like it was hush hush that I was biracial, but we just never talked about it. Yeah. There was no um, reference point, and to look at my brother and to see. My eyes, my eyebrows, you know, my hands. One of the most meaningful things he did within our first few weeks of we wrote emails just for a little bit. And then he's a busy guy. So we went to texting. And then out of the blue, we were talking about different traits. Out of the blue, he sent me a picture of his hand. It's one of my favorite pictures Mm -hmm. because I looked at that hand and I'm like, that is my 
hand, you know, Mm -hmm. in male version. And gosh, it's those kinds of things that that mean so much. And I've had to learn a little bit, you know, he he likes to, you know, he teaches me about us and and who we are and where we came from. Mm -hmm. and, And he's really open with those things. So it's been a blessing. And that's really cool that he's in a position of being able to be open and receptive and that's cool that he's able to be open and uh, nurturing. He, yeah. he teases me a little bit. I mean, our backgrounds are very different because <laughs> he was raised in a very similar neighborhood that my father was raised in, mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh. And here I'm in um, white rural Ohio, yeah. <laughs> small town. And so there's some differences in our background for sure. And he likes to tease me and, and, uh, pick on me a little bit about that. And I'm like, you can't expect me to know things that I don't know. Yeah, that's right. But on the same, by the same token, y'all are siblings and you're going to be sibling rival over something. So if you didn't have years before now, then here's your thing. If you've been listening to the show for a while, I'm sure you've noticed that the question, who am I really, usually isn't solely about the discovery of a person's identity in adoption. My guest Terry, back on show number five, for example, talked about his adoption journey while casually mentioning that he was coming out as a gay man. Talking to Janet, I kept trying to imagine her interracial heritage and how it impacted her going from small-town America to the more diverse university setting and how she traversed her life thereafter. I asked Janet to take me back to her experience exploring racial identity throughout her life. You know, you had spent, you indicated that you basically had spent quite a bit of time, for lack of better words, trying to assimilate into the community in which you lived. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know, what did it feel like for you to go to this new community where there were more people like you? It, it was, it was a little intimidating, but it was really good. And, and I, I joke, I, I worked at Pizza Hut to, to put me through college and my roommate, we didn't know each other ahead of time. And, and she was even from a less diverse community than me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And we both worked at this pizza hut together, which was very diverse. We just made some really good friends. And, and there was this waitress, JP was her nickname. And I would ask her some questions and she would took us under her wing because she knew we were small town girls and she knew a little bit of my story. And, but it was, it was so satisfying, but yet yeah, created more questions and curiosities, but, you know, really trying to help me figure out, I'm not white, you know, am I white? Am I not white? Am I black? Am I not black? And it mm-hmm. does, you know, just all of that. And, and, and that's sometimes a hard thing to settle where you fit in and, and you shouldn't have to, because this is also the time frame where there's not a box for mixed race when you're filling out an application yeah, or, right. you know, back in the day you had to pick. And sometimes I'd go from picking white and I'm like, no, I'm going to pick black. And it's like, well, I'm both, yeah, <laughs> you, you yeah. know, but it was, it was a time of learning. Yeah. My wife is interracial as well, and she's told me a little bit about her own experience in trying to identify either mm-hmm. way, right? Because she is, in fact, both. Her her mother is white and right. Canadian, and her father is black and Caribbean. And, it, you know, you would think that it would be kind of fun to jump back and forth between box to box, no matter what form you're filling out. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine it's very unsettling in your own it is. mind to to not have – this thing that you know presumably should have been definitively expressed 
when you were mm-hmm. born still be this open issue for you as you continue to traverse your life. But that is that is the nature of any interracial mixture, right? It perpetuates the feeling of not fitting, you know, of not quite fitting in anywhere. Yeah. And that was always interesting. Yeah, I can see how it was interesting. But I think, you know, on the flip side, as alienating as it probably is to be in multiple worlds, I think the world would be a better place if more of us looked like you couldn't tell what we were because it would be exactly. that much harder to discriminate against anybody because you just can't tell. And uh, and so while and it, while yeah. it's hard to be interracial, I think that that is an important thing in our world in order to mm-hmm. eliminate some of the, you know, racial biases yeah, that we the, all have. Yeah, it, it's a, it is very unfortunate. You're exactly right. But I'll, I'll have to say I feel so much more complete now being more in touch with that side of my life and that side of my heritage. Mm-hmm. It, it feels so much better now. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, and I can embrace both more mm-hmm. and feel more comfortable in my own skin than I used to. Wow, that's really awesome. Wow. Janet, your story is really unbelievable. I'm so thankful that you had, you know, what sounds like a really positive experience in adoption. I mean, those people loved you we did. from day one and they kept loving you right till the next family member took you over. And that's just, that's such a special thing that I've never heard before. I think it's really, really spectacular. Um, no, I, I, I definitely feel that. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I, I've been very blessed and feel that, um, you know, I've had favor in that way that I, that I've had an experience that not everyone has. So I, I definitely appreciate it as I hear other stories that might not have that same benefit. And I, I think it's really fortunate too that you were able to connect with your biological mother and all of your your relatives. I mean, all your relatives mm-hmm. on both sides. But it sounds like your mother was somebody whom you were hyper focused on, and for you to catch her oh. um, is just that's really really special. Yeah. We had 11 great years. Yeah. We had 11 great, meaningful years. And now it's just me and my brother, but he has four kids on my father's side. And we don't really have anybody else connected to my dad except us. I love him. I love my nieces and nephews. And and so the the story goes on of his heritage and and his lineage. So it's all good. That's really cool. Janet, thank you so much for your bravery and telling your story. This was really cool. It was so interesting to hear. And I wish you all the best. No, thank you very much, Damon. I appreciate the opportunity. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Hey, it's me. Janet clearly feels fortunate to have made the deep connection with her birth mother that so many adoptees hope for. You could just hear in her voice how validating it was to learn of her mother's love for her father, despite the unfortunate end to their relationship many years ago. As she was talking about seeing her mother's pain when they talked about Janet's father, I could relate to the feeling of not wanting to press too much for more information. I knew exactly what she meant when she admitted she did internet searches for information about her father, but didn't share everything she knew with her mother. I did the same thing, and I think a lot of adoptees continue their clandestine searches for more information while protecting the loved ones they've already connected with. On her paternal side, I can't even imagine how fascinating it must have been to come face to face with her brother, a black man who shared some of her physical features. It must have been so crazy to hear his wife say that Janet looks more like their father than he does. 
I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Janet's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I, really? If you would like to share your story of locating and connecting to your biological family, visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can also find the show at facebook.com slash really or follow me on Twitter at really. And please, if you like the show, take a moment to rate Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, or leave a comment for me at whoamireallypodcast.com. Those ratings can help others find the podcast too.